matter of fact, how does the law stay sane if you're not well informed? Well, you wouldn't know. Well, I think. Well, there's a lot of that, actually. All right. Hi, Laura. Let's begin, everybody. There you go. You want to get your stuff? No. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. And we're glad we're here. Yep. Yes. It's a small glad you're here. <laughs> let's, let's say our blessing, and then we can launch right in. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav b'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. And the first words of Torah I want to deal with are Mazel Tov to uh, Bob and Amy, whose first grandchild was born, Zoe. named Zoe Rivka, who's now how many days old? Uh, one week exactly. One week old. It's beautiful. Oh, we have been pouring it on. Her, her grandchildren are old already. They're a month old. Wonderful. Everything good? Okay, that's so wonderful. I also, um, Blaze was talking about being well-informed or sane. I think well-informed, what I'm aware of um, that's happening to us in, in our hyper-connectivity is that it's not that we're well-informed, it's that we're swamped and inundated mm. all the time, and it's hard to know where, which way is up, and I think that's probably what that's referring to. And for what to do with it, yeah. Yeah. Um, my, uh, my, young, my younger daughter had a sleepover with, you know, she's, they're all just finished ninth grade, sweet kids, there were five of them over for a slumber party, and then in the morning, they're all sitting on the couch, each one has their iPhone, <laughs> and it's practically an appendage. Mm -hmm. And they're lovely, and they're relating to each other while they're doing whatever they're doing. It's a whole new world. I said, I said to them, you know, six, seven years ago, we didn't even have these things. What? It must have been so boring. <laughs> and they thought that was pretty funny. Well, what's so sad is seeing couples in restaurants relating to their device and not to the person. So this is our world right now. I have no idea what's going to happen. When I was your daughter's age, my aunts and uncles all wanted me to co over because I was the only one who knew how to rewire lamps. <laughs> that was the technology of that day. <laughs> Excellent. I also, yes, Julia. For those of you who know Ruby Cohn, yeah. I spoke to Ruby this week, yeah. and she's, she's fine. Oh, good. Doing good. Wow. How old is she now? Oh, gosh, she must be 85. I don't no, 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 she's well over 90. Yeah. Really? Can you give me her phone number? I have tried before, and I seem to have had the wrong number. Okay. Yes, I will. Thank you. That's beautiful. Ruby used to live here with her husband, Aaron, who passed away a couple years ago. Oh, thank you for telling us. Sounds good. I'm so glad. Uh, I also want to mention, um, I was having a very interesting time reading about um, uh, the Pope's um, encyclical on the environment. Um, because reading the rationale that he's put forward about how the, what the Bible sort of tells us, and uh, it's very much what 
I as part of, I guess you'd call it the spiritual environmental movement for the last 35 years. It's the stuff that we've been studying and teaching and now it's made it to the Pope. Pope. And it's really interesting. I'm going to write about that tomorrow, I decided. I think it's worth talking about. And the right-wingers are upset because he's dealing with science that he doesn't know anything about. Didn't stop them. (laughs) Well, let's not get political now. No, let's not. (laughs) So we can have our class. Yes, yes. Uh, now it's officially released. He has a lot of advisors. Let me tell you. I know. Okay. So I want to stay one week behind because we spent two weeks on Beha'alotcha and I want to take it right into Shalachlecha. So even though we're reading the next Parsha, which is called Korach, this week in Shul, you'll forgive me, I, wanna, I just want to spend one more uh, week being catch, catching up. By the way, so that's on, so Shlachlecha is on page um, 979. Okay, we So, the schedule, by the way, I'll just say it now and I'll say it again at the end of class. I'm away next week, no class, on June 25th. But we have scheduled another four classes in July. I would love to have you continue. So, the first four Thursdays in July, I believe that's July 2nd, 9th, 16th, 23rd, I yep. think, yeah. Not the 30th. Not the 30th, I have an engagement. Uh, so. I thought you were married. <laughs> I, I uh, am married. Is that, a, is that a new class financially, or is that a continuation? Well, it's a continuation. I mean, I mean it's a new class financially. Okay. It is. Yeah. Yes. And we'll run for four Thursdays in July. And then a few weeks off, and then we'll pick up in late August. Again, okay? okay? So next week is the... 25th. No class. No class. No class. Good. I have somebody coming in. Great. And then we pick up again on July... 2nd. 2nd. Correct. Okay. Hey, Bill. Hi, Bill. <sighs> Bill, you need a cushion? Uh, yeah, Bob will help you out. It's a, yeah. Okay, we're good. Okay. Great. So, in the, uh, Previous week, there was the, uh, uh, we read all about the continuing inability, you know, complaints and lack of faith and 
all the ways we described the behavior of the children of Israel. Chapter 12, which we didn't get to, is when Miriam and Moses challenge, Miriam and Aaron challenge Moses' leadership. They say, who are you that you get to be the leader? God speaks to us as well. Then, that's how that portion ends. Then we have this portion, which details the story of the 12 scouts who go up to scout out the land, come back, and we're going to read it carefully, tell everybody that it's a good land, but there's giants there, and there's no way we can do this. And the people uh, lose it completely again and say, let's appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. And then... This is when, and we're going to read this, this is when God decrees they're not going to be able to go into the promised land. They're, they're going to have to wander. And only their children will enter the promised land. They're going to die in the wilderness. So that story is what happens here. This, this turning point in the story. We forget that the 40 years of wandering were not preordained. It's, uh, but that the store, but that they occur as a, as a result of the behavior of the children of Israel. And then what happens in this week's portion, which we're not going to get to, is it says, and Korach, who is Moses' first cousin, Korach took himself and some of his other leaders and said, who are you, Moses, to raise yourself up above us? Is not... Same thing that that Aaron and Miriam say. Mm -hmm. Is not the whole community holy? These are... There there aren't simple answers to these questions, are there? Um, And so what we see here is... uh, It's not a meditation because it's much too dramatic for a meditation. It's it's a, a deep reflection on leadership on the nature of leadership, who gets to be leader, why do they get to be leader, where does their authority come from, and what's the follower's job? Uh, you know, uh, it's all... So uh, I remember Bob uh, Lipgar actually uh, told me about a book um, that I read uh, a couple of years ago about Moses and political leadership. Wasn't that you, Bob? Sure. Yeah, um, a political scientist from Israel wrote a whole book about political leadership based on these stories in the Torah. You can see how it would naturally uh, lend itself to to that kind of telling in addition to the more personal kind of narrative that we've also been drawing from it. Uh, I would use these texts in a course on political leadership. What's the name of the book? I'm forgetting. I don't think that's the name. (laughs) Do you remember, Bob? Okay, it's all right. I have it at home. Okay. That means it'll come back. So when it comes yeah, back, it pops up and yell it out. <laughs> okay. So Moses, Moses uh, as a leader, or the leadership of Moses, something like that. Yeah, but I'll, I'll be able to figure it out real quick. So, so Moses wouldn't have gotten to go anyway. I mean, you know, the 
the story goes that because he you know, struck the rock and whatever he did. But that happens later in the Book of Numbers. Right, but he wouldn't have been able to go if the decree was that nobody from the original group could go to the promised land. That would have included him. Except for two people. Oh, okay. Joshua. Oh, okay. It's two. 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 Joshua and Caleb. We'll read about it. Right. Because while the scout, while the other spies, scouts took the heart out of the people, it says, Joshua and Caleb's words gave them heart. And I want to point that out that uh, we've talked before that the root of the word courage is k, which is heart. So giving someone heart is about giving them courage. So there's something about the journey that requires courage. Um, what a great quality. Where would we be without it? <sighs> and, and I just was thinking of the cowardly lion. Yes, the cowardly, the cowardly lion. Who had so much heart. That's right. I thought he didn't. I thought he did have a lot of courage. No, it's the tin man who doesn't have a heart. But the cowardly lion, yeah. Yeah, he just had courage. Remember, he was just playing courage. He was. He already had it, right? Right. Right. So. From the Wizard of Oz, I remember that. Well done, Well. Do you know what Oz means in Hebrew? No, what? Strength. Strength? Uh, Amos Oz. Amos Oz. Oz means strength. So, the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> All right. And Shalach Lecha means? Send forth. For yourself. Okay, here we are again. But before we get into the parsing of that word, I want to look at the very beginning and the very end of the portion. So we're on page 979. yod heh said to Moses, send anashim, notables, leaders, people, vayaturu et eretz knan. And they are going to, latur is to scout or to tour. To tour. Interestingly, it's... Uh, <laughs> A tayar is a tourist in Hebrew, but I don't think it's because, I think it's an accident of, of language there. Um, ta, but remember that word, yaturu, at Eretz Canaan, uh, that I am giving to the children of Israel. Send one man from each of their ancestral ta- tribes, each one a chieftain among them. Okay, so that's the instruction, latur et ha'aretz. Now, I want to point out to you now that if you keep your finger on that page and turn to page 990, which is the end of the Parsha. It's not accidental, as we've seen in other years, we've pointed this out, that this paragraph is the ending of Shlachacha, selected because of this language. And Yodhei said to Moses, this is now at the end of this debacle. Tra- I should say this tragedy. Because right? it's really a tragedy. Um, oh, and I didn't answer your question. Moses, we presume, would be entering the land uh, prior uh, 
to, to this incident and assumes he's going to enter the land until he strikes the rock, which is 39 years later. I mean, it's, uh, it's another story. Um, the Eternal One said to Moses as follows, Speak to the children of Israel and instruct them to make themselves fringes, tzitzit, on the corners of their garments throughout the ages. Let them attach a twine of royal blue to the fringe, the tzitzit, at each corner. This is about the talus, right? This is the fringes on the talus. Uh, that shall be your tzitzit, your fringe. Look at it and recall all the commandments of the Eternal and observe them. Uh, so that, velo taturu So that you don't go wandering after your, uh, mm, your, your heart, but they don't, here heart is not intended in a positive way of follow your heart. Here it means your, uh, your desires, your lusts, your uh, passion, your impulses, you know. Uh, so. Would the word craving fit there? No, but you could, but it goes with, yes, it would fit there, not etymologically, but definitely thematically, the craving that set them astray in the last week's portion, that's right. Don't follow your cravings. I think you're right, Jay. Yes? Uh, they're only referring to this as your garments. Do they mean, there's no, they're not calling it really a talus? Right. So the, here's the history of this. So it could also be women's garments? I mean, they, is this specific in any way? No. The uh, no, the talus is a later interpretation of this of passage, garments. of garment. We can presume that our ancestors wore um, a loom, stuff that was made on a loom, that a poncho or a kaftan, or, and they would put on the corners these fringes. So they would wear it on their clothing. Oh, for males and females? Uh, it, doesn't it doesn't say anywhere that females can't. Right. Right? Even though it, the females were never included in this until now, because remember, we're dealing with a tradition where the males are the public. Uh, have, are, are the masters of the public sphere and the women, as in much of the Near East, are in the, are in the domestic sphere so, that for the, so this was only spoken with the intention of it being men but there's no, nothing here that prevents women from wearing and that's why you will see in many synagogues even very more traditional synagogues than ours women wearing taluses now because, okay, we, we, it doesn't say anywhere that it couldn't be but what you should know historically is that somewhere along the way, a specific garment was, um, uh, what's the word? Designated. Designated for these fringes. And that garment was called the talit, um, the shawl, or as some of you know, uh, uh, Orthodox men wear, and, and other folks too who aren't Orthodox, both men and women who choose to, wear something called a talit katan, which is a little undergarment. It's just a square of fabric with a hole in it for your head and four fringes on it, and they wear it all the time. Uh, and some people tuck their fringes in, and other people wear them visible. Right? So, but you're absolutely right. I'm glad you noticed that the the practice of having a specified garment to contain these fringes is a later development in Judaism that may have developed as a necessity of changing fashion 
you know what I mean? Uh, as as close, do you know about this? No, I, because the, the, the high priest and assistants wear leggings so that apparently, I mean, I'm guessing that means that everybody else didn't have undergarments and didn't wear trousers. Mm -hmm. And so later on when trousers became more commonplace for everyone, and especially in, in Europe where it was colder and you needed the extra warmth around your legs, that that's when um, robes for everyone became not commonly used. Ah. Uh, so they, because the, the trousers were to keep the private parts private when they were serving God. Yes, uh, and, and when the Jews got to Scotland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I, I'm sure someone who is, who is a his, historian of fashion, which is pretty darn interesting, might be able to answer this question, but I can't, about when it became its own designated garment. Yes? So, practically speaking, not to be literal, but they're in the desert, right? They don't have a lot of clothing and stuff with them. They're kind of wearing the same thing most of the time. Right. Yeah. Where are they finding this blue thread? <laughs> ah, okay. So we don't know if they had the blue thread in the wilderness. That may be a retrojection. On the other hand, yeah, yeah. Well, this, we can presume that these stories about being in the wilderness are written by the, the Israelites when they've settled in the land of Israel. They carry this lore with them, but eventually it becomes a telling of the days of our youth when God loved us in the wilderness, right? But furthermore, they're in the wilderness, but the spice trade routes and are very active. The Phoenicians... Stones, lapis lazuli. Lapis lazuli. So, so the Phoenicians, who are the seagoing people who live on the coast, who probably harvest this dye from the mollusk uh, that they harvested it from, um, it, you know, and the frankincense and myrrh are coming from over there, and you know, these are ancient, ancient trade routes. Right. So, so are they it's very likely. Are they actually walking in a circle? We have no idea. We just don't know. We just don't know. We just don't, don't go east. No, there is a, um, you'll see that geographically, they are on the outskirts of the lowlands of the coastal plain of Israel here. Okay. They've walked from Egypt and they're in Midbar Paran, uh, which we can identify. We know where it is. It's on the Egyptian-Israeli border. They're just three days walk. Right? Yeah. And after this, God says, turn around and go via the way of the, red, the Sea of Reeds uh -huh. because you're not ready to take these right. people on. And so, they're, so we can guess that much, that they head up and, and then, then they head back. We don't, and then it says they lived in the wilderness of Kadesh for, but it doesn't say how long or where they went. Or, um, uh, at the end of the book of Numbers, there's the Parsha called Masay, Journeys. That's the very end of the Book of Numbers, which lists all the places they camped in the 40 years. Uh, some of them can be geographically identified. Others feel more um, symbolic in the way the name is. But the, ge the actual geographical journey, in my opinion, is less important because we, don't have, we have no idea whether they were in the wilderness of 40 years we have no idea 
we have no idea. No, it's more metaphor than it's. It, this is this is yes. This is sacred storytelling. Yeah, yeah and it could have felt like forty years. <laughs> <laughs> this is sacred. It could have felt like forty years. Oh, oh, just one second, Amy. Yes, Jay. Yeah, I'm just thinking of some relationship here because um, these other garments. Um, I, I should know the Mormons wear other garments for um, protection and for empowerment. Uh-huh. The Mormons took this piece, perhaps. They might have. As a, as a, as yeah. a very significant part of their own. Yes. Think about, think about 19th century in the United States, early 19th century, when Mormonism and many other revival and spiritual, sort of America was like a spiritual, like, um, uh, percolating, unbelievable amount of new religious movements. A lot of them in upstate New York, as some of us, you know, studied. Uh, what was their source book? The Bible. They didn't have a lot of books. This was their book. They knew it by heart. They knew that. So sure, sure, they would have modeled themselves. It's the same with Islam, in its own way. Muhammad uses so much lore from Jewish sources, not just the uh, Bible, but uh, later Jewish sources, midrash. Uh, that's, that's the literature they had, I suppose, among other literatures. Yeah, yeah. Amy, what did you want to say? Um, just in terms of the, the, the 40 years of wandering, uh, you, you had said before that, that in this passage, God basically says you're not ready to go to the promised land. So is it just really the fact that they were nomadic and that they did not have a, a, a land, that they were still on the journey to... to that's not the thrust of the Torah. The thrust of the Torah is that they've just come out of slavery. Right? We don't know anything historically. Yeah. Right. We know nothing historically. There is one mention of, of, a, of a people called Israel on a long list of um, tribes uh, that a pharaoh marks at about this time on an obelisk of people that he conquered. That is the only extra-biblical mention of Israel and connected to Egypt, okay? We know nothing. There is no, this, there's no mention of Moses extra-biblically. Now, if you don't have anyone saying, oh yeah, and then we don't have some Roman historian at the time, or some Greek historian at the time, or some Egypt, that saying there's some guy named Moses. So we don't know anything. So I have to take the story on its own terms in saying that this is about going from slavery to freedom. So saying they were nomads isn't sufficient to explain why they had to wander all these years. Only in, in terms of it being a journey to get from slavery to freedom. That, that they did not have, that they needed to not be aligned with a place in order to evolve to that point to be able to go to the promised land. Yes, yes, you could think of it that way. Uh, somehow they had to get Egypt out of their system. Mm. Right. And if they had gone directly to the Promised Land, they wouldn't have known to appreciate it. It's a fascinating thing about the Torah um, that it doesn't tell us what's going to happen. It just tells us what happens. Uh, so, um, <coughs> but what God does say when in Beshalach, uh, when as soon as the children of Israel leave Egypt, it says, 
Now, this is back in Exodus. Now, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although it was nearer. For God said to God's self, the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. So this kind of pre uh, presages everything that's about to happen the way the Torah does. Gee, maybe they're not ready. And it turns out they're not ready. And once again, God isn't omnipotent in the Torah, omniscient. God is on a learning curve and gets frustrated a lot. Um, so yes, yes. So what I wanted to point out to you about these two things, so now I'm, I'm still on page 990. So you don't get dragged after your heart or whatever catches your eyes. Um, okay, that's, what's a zona? A prostitute. You go whoring is basically the language here. After whatever catches your heart or your eye. Strong language, typical biblical language. Um, Thus you shall be reminded to observe my mitzvot and be holy to your God. I am yod your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I yod your God. So the key here is that is the word taturu, yaturu, to scout, to tour, to reconnoiter. Uh, so the scouts are sent up to reconnoiter, and they follow, as you'll see, their own little, their fears, their egos, their desires. Do I like it? Do I not like it? Not is it at the place we should be going. Right? They, they get caught up in their internal... Mishigas. Mishigas. Their fear. Um, uh, their, their anxiety, their self-esteem. You'll see. And so when it says don't... So look at the fringes, it says at the end, and don't go after whatever your heart or eyes is perceiving because you can't trust that moment by moment roller coaster in order to determine what the righteous path is, what the direction towards greater awareness is. What you, that's that can't be your compass <laughs> because it. I'm thinking about myself. If I heeded every every urge and every impulse in my brain, I have to have to. Tr- we have to train ourselves to stay on the road, right? You know, it's, it's a good image. It's like driving like this. You know, it, 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 that, you can't do it that way. You're not going to be able to reach your destination. You have to be in the driver's seat in that whole different way where you're considering much larger context than the fact that a bell rang and you started salivating. And I think that's an important analogy, right? I see a billboard, you know, and I'm, I'm off. Yep. So this then pertains also to spiritual journey, right? How we practice through our lives not to be dragged away by every thought that occurs to us, but learn how to discipline ourselves in a positive way to stay, on the, stay focused, to stay on the ball. And when we wander, as meditators know, to say, oh, I wandered, and come back. Um, So whether it's a political journey, 
or a physical journey or an ethical or moral situation or this idea of growing in the awareness of a spiritual journey, these, this, is, this seems to be what gets known in Jewish tradition as the sin of the spies. Sin of what? The sin of the spies, the scouts. Gotcha. Is that they, did, they didn't stay. stay on the ball. And they're the leaders, right? And that gets me, I'm talking to myself, um, this is all about leadership. It says, choose 12, call, and says in verse uh, 2, on, back on the beginning of the Parsha, on 979, call nasi by him. What's a nasi? Prince. A prince, n- nasi. Nasi, a prince. Prince, or the nasi of Israel is the president. The nasi is, the, is, uh, is truly the leader, the chieftain. Um, and uh, so these are the chieftains of each tribe. Yes, Bob? Yeah, but there's something confusing about this. Good. Because God says to Moses, send forth men, if you please, and let them spy out the land that I give to the children of Israel. This is in the present tense, God is saying. I'm now giving it to the children but that's not true. He gave it to Abraham. He gave it, he said to Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. He said to Isaac, to Jacob. So it's already a done deal. So why if God has already promised the land of Israel to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, why is he saying to Moses, send out men to see if you want to, you want to take this land? So now... Let's. I want to speak to that. Do yeah, you want to I say? do because I, I would think that readiness to enter in is important, and sending out the best of them Ooh. would kind of let God know if they were ready, how they reacted to it, and they didn't react so great. So that's when God said, "Okay, it was like a little test." And it, it did, you know, God didn't want to send everybody in. God wanted to send the best, whatever this means of leadership and chieftainhood and all of that, and if they didn't respond well, then nobody's going to respond well, and then the whole thing... This is great. This is great. Bob has raised the question that commentators have raised about this passage for millennia, and Susan's given one of the (laughs) classic answers to that question. What do you want to add, Julia? Um, A lot of bar mitzvah kids have this parsha. Because it's and, in the spring. And I have heard Rabbi Jonathan talk about, uh, the kids talk about, and you used to talk about, the whole idea of being frightened. Yes. And it's a perfect bar mitzvah diminished. portion. Mm-hmm. Feeling, feeling diminished. We're going to get to that line. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yes. When the, when, the, when the scouts come back, they say, we felt like grasshoppers. Oh. And so we must have looked to them. We'll, we'll approach that line. Uh, but God is also not rescinding the promise. It's just, no, it's not time. When. It's just, it's not, it, you, you're not ready for it. It's different from I'm taking it back. True. True. It gets there. delayed, but not rescinded. It's been delayed. <clears throat> I mean, it's back. called the promised land, meaning there's a promise. Um, Isn't this always what happens with uh, Talk a little louder, Joya. Isn't this always what happens with that moment? when you are in transition of any sort, any sort, physical, psychological, spiritual, that transitional period is very dangerous because it puts you in the liminal space of you're not here, you're not there. It reminds me of that funny song, 
of, uh, you know, who have you ever had the feeling that you wanted to go, that you wanted to stay, that you wanted to go. And he keeps going, you know, uh, Jimmy Durant. And, and it's a true spiritual feeling. In other words, and it's also a physical feeling. So this is, I think, a test in a, in, in a very deep sense yes. of where are we? Where am I? Where, where am, am I? I? God said, calls out to Abraham. He says, here I am. I have to know I, I, that I'm here. You know, it also puts into question the deepest thinking of what is the word experience. Mm -hmm. They have not got experience of this. Mm -hmm. They have experience of something else. It's and lost. God is saying, like, what also in the unknown, because there's unknown in this transition, what is the experience of God? Like, mm -hmm. who is God? Yeah. And what is the experience that we need to trust when we mostly trust what? Our senses, mm -hmm. our, you know what I'm saying. Our yes, I do, because we talked last week about the manna, what, and yeah. how the meaning of manna in Hebrew is, what is this? Mm -hmm. or, manna means, what is this? Oh. And uh, that is, they don't know God. They don't know this experience. They're in this new space. And uh, you'll forgive me, I, I, I keep butchering this quote. I think it's from Mark Twain about how uh, experience, good experience, wisdom is always the product of bad experiences, and you can't have good experiences until you've had bad experiences. So you, Anyway, something like that. There's a lot of learning to do. Bob? I'm back to the question of what do the, the, what's the commentary, what do the scholars say about why this is in the present tense? Why is there no reference to the past? Because the question Bob raised, I, I so let's. So I don't know the answer to that question, but I can I can say what the commentators focus on, which is something that you'll recognize if you've been studying all year with me. This is on 979, and Yerevave spoke to Moses saying, "Shlach lecha anashim, send lecha." To you, for yourself? So it's like lech lecha. Which, the com, which it should just say lech. Go. Shlach anashim. It's in the command form. Send men. Instead it says send for yourself men. Now again, in the plain meaning of the text, we can say that shlach lecha is an idiom. An idiom that makes it emphatic. Like get thee out. Or send thee forth, you know. However, they, because it's strange already to the, com to, to, to the commentaries that uh, God would, God, why, does God, why do they need to send scouts? I mean, God promised them the land, said it's a good land. So why do they need to send scouts? So one of the classic midrashim about this is that, uh, and Rashi quotes it, um, I am not commanding you, and this is why, see, why this translation is problematic is because Stone incorporates Rashi commentary into the English. Right. So you can't tell that that's not what the Hebrew right. says. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. However, I know what, why they translated it that way, but for the uninitiated, the translation may not be right. uh, um, <coughs> assumes that you accept Rashi's interpretation. Right. Uh, I am not commanding you, as it were, God says, but if you wish, you may send. Uh, and this reminds me of, 
in the last portion when, at the beginning of Bahalotcha, when Moses' father-in-law is getting ready to go home, and Moses says, do you remember? Stay with us, because you know all the good places, and you know where the watering holes are, and you know how to lead us. You know this territory. And you're thinking, why is Moses saying this? Didn't we just have a whole chapter on just follow the cloud? You know? And I feel like this is another incident where God is saying, okay, if you need to, yeah? Oh, but wait, God is the creator of the whole thing. So that all of creation is God, God in creation, right? There's some, True. There's some total connection here. Well, we may have some judgment into place or feeling or attitude that puts it not in, uh, maybe it becomes specific because God is saying, uh, send the scouts because that might be specific to something like the Moses father-in-law who knows how to get wells and how to find water. That, that the land doesn't all have water. True. Right? And yet it was all created. So there's this and that, and there's yes and no, and there's dry and wet. So maybe we have to know well enough to find the place that does suit a group of people. Maybe it's more... In other words, maybe maybe faith has to then include our own experience and expertise and also faith in God, but also something that is real. Thank you, Joy. Saying be real too, maybe. Get real. Go scout the land out. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it is valuable to have knowledge of water. Good. To where to find it. It is very important. Good, good, good. Yes. Uh, the more we get into this, the more it looks like there's some Double speak here. <laughs> because God says to Moses, send spies to spy out the land to test the land. Um, Latour could mean to scout or to spy. But really, it's not the land that's being spied. Reconnoiter. But it's the people that are being tested. The land is not being tested. The land is a done deal. It's a good land. The land We've is heard a it over deal. and over. Uh -huh. The double speak is it appears that the land is being checked out, but in fact, it's the people that are being checked out. Good. Good. Uh, how do you know when you're, when you're in that liminal space that Joy was talking about? How, how do you know when you're ready to move forward? So we'll read a little now. So Moses, by Yudhivavi's command, sent them out from the wilderness of Paran, all of them being notables, leaders of the Israelites. Anashim Roshay Bnei Yisrael I'm on page 979. And these were their names. Um, they have interesting names, but, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it now. But there's, there's Kalev, Caleb, whose name means, comes from, probably related to Kalev, dog. And there's a guy named Susi, Horsey, and Gamali, camel. And there's a bunch of interesting names here. I don't know. So anyway, those were the names of the notables. But I'm not going to focus on that now. Those are the names of the notables whom Moses sent to scout the land. And Moses changed the name of Hoshea, son of Nun, to Yehoshua. Son of Nun. So Joshua gets a Yud in his name, which is a big deal. Oh, that's like an Why is that because Abraham gets a He in his name. 
Sarag becomes Sarai gets a hey. Yud is one of the letters in the name of God. So we, when a name is changed like that, there's an expansion, some kind of expansiveness. And later in Deuteronomy, uh, J- uh, Moses is going to fill um, Joshua's hands. It's called, uh, you know, as an ordain, fill him with the spirit of leadership. So now on page 980. When Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan, He said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the mountain. Okay, I'm saying where all it says, go up. Or item et see the land. What is it? And how about the people who dwell in the land? Are they strong or weak? Are they few or many? And what about the land uh, that they dwell in? Is it good? Or is it bad? And what about the cities that are there? Um, uh, are, they, uh, are they open or fortified? And is the land Shmena, rich, uh, or Raza, or um, uh, lean? Yeah, uh, you know, is it? Not fertile. Not fertile, yeah. Is it have, does it, does it have trees? But this one, the commentators don't miss because it's singular. Does it have a tree? That's a whole other story. Um, or not. Im ayin. V'hit chazaktem. Strengthen yourselves and take from the fruit of the land. For this happened to, for this was the season of the ripening grapes. And this is all double speak. It's irrelevant about the land. The land is a done deal. It's so a this test. Whole thing is a smokescreen. For what? I like this reading. A smokescreen for what? Smokescreen, because you don't have you don't have to search out the land. The land is a given. It's yours. You have to search out yourself, and that's why the word here is hitchazaktem. So the whole test is, will they strengthen themselves? Will they have courage? Themselves, not right. the land. Right, strengthen yourselves. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you on that reading. Bill? Yeah, it's something to do. It's, it's being given something to do while they're being tested to see whether they're mature enough to make it into this land. To make it into this new, new state of being, from the old state of being, which was uh, powerlessness, where you, yes, you could eat for free, but you weren't in charge of your destiny. Yes? Yeah, this does make sense, because these people have had no experience in choosing to find out if it's good or not and what's good about it and what's workable or not. And what is good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like a primer they have to have. And these are the 12 leaders of each tribe. So this is significant. They're sending the sort of, as a representative of each tribe, not just somebody, but like the the exemplar. Yeah, this is what to look for. It's a good sampling. Well, slaves don't get to choose anything. Right. So they don't know that. Right. Experience. We need to have sympathy. 
uh, is some Rahmanas. We have to have some compassion for this bunch. Uh, and God and Moses alternate between the ones who can remember who's, who's ready to, to just... To, between, it's either Moses or God, but fortunately neither at the same time, who's ready to say, I cannot stand these people anymore. <laughs> and the other one says, no, 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 honey. <laughs> yeah. Like kids. <laughs> oh, it's very much like kids. Very much like parenting. This is very much reminding me of something that I will say to students after a piece of work, after they do a piece of work, and I will ask what they experienced. And they will tell me what they thought. They will tell me their judgment on it. They will tell me everything but what they actually experienced. And and most people have to be taught that that's a valuable observation. My, my experience of this is a valuable observation. Interesting. And that the others are just what was already in my head about it. Projection. So my, my, my projection or my, or my fear or my anxiety of what it might be when I, when I get in there. That's why this is such a good portion for a bar mitzvah boy or a bar mitzvah yeah. girl. Yeah. But of course for all of us. But it is, it is about moving from childhood into some, some kind of maturity. It's a becoming. Yes, so, Susan and then um, Bill. Go, go up. Isn't that what Aliyah means? Right. To go the up. going up is crucial here. So, There's an ascent. There, so think about making Aliyah. There's a fortitude, there's a necessary kind of, I call it spiritual Pilates in the <laughs> core of your being to be able to go into that. It's very different. So two things I notice. One is maybe they are being asked to notice what's in the land because they're not sure. They have, they'll be having to grow things. They'll be having to deal with things that maybe they haven't dealt with before in terms of how you work land and what you do mm -hmm. uh, to sustain yourselves. And the other thing is that it, it, one can read this as you instead of, are the people who dwell in it st strong or weak, few or many? I could say, are you strong or weak? Are you few or many? Is the country um, good or bad? Are you good or bad? I mean, to find out really about themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bill, you wanted to add something? Yeah, the, it seems like a directive for a more mature, but no, it's a directive for an immature people. Um, mature, a mature person would already know to stay the course. Don't bother with distractions uh, that, that appear before you. If you have a goal, this is what you need to do to accomplish this goal. They need to be told this. They need to learn it. They need they to need experience to, it. That's right. And, and therefore, also, I agree for a, it's a good bar mitzvah. Uh, <laughs> or bar mitzvah. Or bar mitzvah. mitzvah. Not for that reason, no. Stu? Yeah, it, 400 years ago um, or more, that's when God said, go to a land that I will show you. This will be your land. So 400 years later, these people, who, do they remember anything of what Abraham, Isaac, and, Joseph, and Jacob was about? No. And did God ever, the only thing God really did was to defeat Pharaoh. 
Did he ever do anything to defeat the other people who were around there? No, it looked like in the story, they have to go and defeat these other people. Yes, God, they do. God does, says, this is your land, go fight for it. Go take it. Go take it and fight for it. And that's different. It's one thing that says, this is your land, <laughs> see it's clear, it's all yours. Again, uh, it's true, this is your land, go take it. Well, that's life, right? I mean, go earn it, go live it, go grab it, go, go figure it out, go fight your battles. There's no other way. There's no other way other than spinning your wheels and staying in the limbo. Yeah, and not, not, taking, not, not stepping up into your life. So, uh, Jerry? The analogy uh, is the difference, this is very broad and, and not applying to everybody, the difference between the college education earned by waiting on tables and working hard and the behavior of the student versus the one where daddy and mommy gives you a check and you party your way through college. You know, when you have to work and earn something, mm -hmm. usually the value is much greater. So they have to earn this land. Mm -hmm. And I gotta tell you, that also makes me think, uh, yes, that college analogy is good. And it makes me think about my three Israeli nephews and my Israeli niece who are now all, uh, uh, well, one of them is still in the Air Force. Um, what they gained by serving three years in the Army is amazing compared to uh, how they are at age 21 compared to their American counterparts in general is just amazing who haven't served. So I'm not saying everyone should go in the Army, but everyone needs to like have a rite of passage. Do it. Yeah. Step up to the plate. Step up. Learn what it means to do what you say you're going to do and to be responsible for all the people around you and all that stuff. Uh, that's, that's what's being asked for. Yes, we live in a culture that doesn't demand that of people. It's a problem. It's a big problem. It used to be that you would be drafted and then... Uh, Talk a little louder, Stu. It used to be you would be drafted. Not everyone got drafted. And then Nixon, to get the middle class off of his back, said, we're not going to do drafting anymore. We're going I to am not advocating a universal draft. <laughs> I am talking of... I am, actually. I think it's no, a wonderful no. mixer of people. And you don't have to be a warrior to do it. Right. But you, have, you, you do something, you could be building He's houses for Stu people. served. I am an advocate of national service. Yes. yes. I, I always have been, not that it's ever going to happen, Absolutely. but uh, yes, for that very purpose. To commit to something bigger than yourself. Yes, yes. And that's so that you don't go off after whatever grabs your eye. Right? There's some, there's, this is so deep. It's not just follow your heart. It is not just follow your heart here. Following the heart does that. Excuse me. That's the greatest definition of the heart. The heart is the place where we are all, no matter what age, group, sexual ideas, color, anything, we are all in the heart together. We're, that's what the heart is. Nicely says. put. It, and if our context is that your heart is somehow uh, distinct and separate from everyone else's, then that you're going to be thinking... It's a lower definition of heart. Yeah. It's the passion of the... Yeah, well, I was using it in the way it gets right. used here. You know, I was reading several columns about, by commencement speakers about what the heck am I going to talk about. 
and this desire not just to tell students to follow their heart right now, but some, that there's something more that's, that we need to incorporate. Yeah, yeah. So, verse 21. Is there, just as a quick aside, is there another nation that has a, is like that? That has national service? Yes. Uh, like Israel? Correct. I don't know the answer to that. Oh, yes. Um, I know that Greece does. I don't know about the, the ramifications of that, but I know that Greece does. Um, I think a lot of the European countries... Have national service? Have national service. I don't know. I don't know. When I lived in Italy, they did. The boys went for two years. The women didn't. Interesting. So now I want to I point out, look at verse, look at verse 21. It starts again with the word vaya'alu, they went up. So, in addition to this being a physical landscape, remember this byword that uh, Torah is the map and you are the landscape. Or you, Torah is the landscape, whichever one it is. It's like, this is about the Torah consistently and Judaism ever since talks about going down to Egypt and up to the land, to the holy mountain. Right. So the, the spiritual journey, which we almost naturally map as an ascent in, for some reason in the way we're wired, or maybe because when you get up high, you have the big view. I don't know. It is that. It is the image in stories, for example, of both the tree, uh, the tree and the mountain. And, right. And the, for, for the Hebrews, it's the mountain, like Sinai. And the tree is also a folkloric, and every people believe in it, that the tree ascends to the spirit, has the literal right here where the bark is, and then has the roots unseen, like the unconscious, mm-hmm. the unknown. And those are the three levels of worlds that our ancestors, where we came from, believed in. Right. That there were three places you had to be in. Underworld, the literal world, and the above spiritual world. Thank you. And it's also the, the mountain. Also the mountain. And we have, so in Judaism, we have the holy mountain. Let's go up to Jerusalem. And we have the tree of life. That's it. Uh, as our images that draw on that, what we seem to be wired for. Uh, so, so this is not just a physical journey. We don't know where they wandered in the Sinai wilderness. We don't have historical uh, corroboration that this happened or that happened. But we know we were down in Egypt. Mitzrayim, remember what Mitzrayim means in Hebrew? Narrow. The constricted place. Tsar. Tsar, the narrow, constricted place. We know we were down there, that it was hard to get out, and that God wants us to get up to where we should be in terms of our fulfillment of our, of our, of our nature and our essential being. So that's the journey we're on. And um, this is what the story is about. And at Passover, we remember the journey and the freedom, and we remember not <clears throat> the underneath. We know where the roots were and what happened, the pain and the suffering, and now we know how to go up because... It includes it. That's why we remember history. Thank you. Become conscious of it. So it says in verse 21, Vayaturu et ha'aretz. There's that word again, latur. They went up and scouted the land from the wilderness of Tzin until Rehov at Levo-Hamat. Levo-Hamat. Sounds like a hot springs to me. Um, And Rehov is an open expanse. Vaya'alu, there it is in verse 22. And they went up into the Negev until they came to Hebron. That's where Achiman, Sheshai, Talmai, the children of Anak, 
the, the offspring of Anak. Anak means giant. Okay, so an Anak is a giant in Hebrew. And the Anakim are the demigods in, before the flood who come up, turn up in verse six, uh, chapter six of Genesis. Um, and they came until Nachal Eshkol, Wadi Eshkol, which still we know where it is, Vayichurtu uh, Misham's Morah. And there they cut down an Eshkol Anavim, a, a bunch of grapes. Echad, one bunch of grapes, Vayisa'uhu Bamot Bishnaim, and it took a, um, uh, what do you call that, uh, palin, pal, when you carry someone on? Yeah, so they took two people to carry this bunch of grapes. It was so big. Okay. That's the symbol for the Ministry of Tourism. Misery, Ministry of Tourism and Carmel Wines. That's right, is the two guys carrying the one bunch of grapes. So it's also interesting that they mentioned they went to Hebron. Hebron is the place where the first Jew bought the first piece of land That's right. in Israel. Abraham buys the burial cave, and that's where Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, they've been gone a long time in Egypt. And their job is to, and Hebron also is the highest point in the Judean hills. It's higher than Jerusalem. And so that's why it's up, up, up. And when you get up to the top, there's a cave there. I mean, we are in the land of, of metaphor and, and mythology here. And who's in that cave? Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Isaac and Rebecca, Rebecca, Jacob and Leah, and then in the Midrash, Adam and Eve. That's not in the Torah, that's in the Midrash. And, and in the... In the recesses of that cave is a light that leads you to the tree of life, the entrance to the Garden of Eden. So they are not just making a physical backpacking trip here, folks. <laughs> they are on a spiritual quest. This book is about a spiritual journey. And it's good to have all the other levels of discussion. But if we get confused about, well, where did they go during those 40 years? Then you miss the you miss the forest for the tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was Picky's question: Why did they bother to tell us Hebron was founded seven years before Zoa in Egypt? I don't know. Isn't that odd? Yeah, and I wish I knew, and I wish I could take me in a time capsule and go back there to find out what the lore was that why that was important. But I don't know why. Uh, and I'm sure we could do some research and see what some historians think about that. They might have some good speculations. Well, it, it may make sense because Hebron is where Abraham bought the piece of land. And mm -hmm. so it says, in a sense, that our tradition is earlier than the Egyptian. That's a really good, uh, that's a really interesting speculation there, Bob. I, I like that one very much. That maybe it has something to do with, and this was before even. The, the tourist bureau. <laughs> <laughs> right, before even Egypt's city of Zoan was built. Uh, that's how long ago we've had a claim on this place. Yeah. So they're going to the place that was promised them. But promised them, this is like, they've been, in, they've been slight, none of this is real to them. So maybe they have to go see it on some level in order to make it realer for themselves. Uh, well... It is real because when Joseph died, 
he said, when you guys go back to our land, would you take my take bones? Take my bones up out of so here. So Joseph's bones are with them. That's right. They are carrying Joseph's bones with them. With the so, scouts? No, yeah. with, the, no with the 12 oh, tribes. Yeah. yeah, they bring Joseph's bones with them yeah. out of Egypt. So they are carrying the bones of the patriarchs with them back. That's fascinating, isn't it? So again, the, just the kind of the, the richness of the uh, journey here, you can really, you can get a deep feeling that it's not, that it's, th- this isn't, that each one of these threads kind of enriches the story that's being told. Both literal and symbolic. Right. Always both. Always both. Yes, Amy. Do they um, refer to the bones, or is it just we understand? No, they actually, the bones get referred to in early in the book of Exodus. Uh, Moses retrieves Joseph's bones. So we did, we're now presuming that they're carrying them. Yes. Yes, they're carrying two arons. And this is also, an aron means a, a chest. They're carrying the aron that has the Ten Commandments, the tablets in them, and they're carrying a sarcophagus with... Joseph's bones in it. Mm. I hear a story. There's a story to be told here about what they're carrying. Mm. Um, Okay, excellent. A song, too. They're carrying a song. No, no, it could be a a very interesting song. Yes. With those images. It could be, yes. So, the single cluster of grapes... So they're in like, what kind of landscape are they walking in? A landscape of giants, and we're in fairy tale land here now, right? right? That's what I want to say. It's like, this is, what kind of journey is this? Did they just climb the beanstalk? You know, it's like, what, what's going on here? So, and that place, and some pomegranates, and some figs. So that's why we call that place Wadi Eshkol, <coughs> still to this very day, because the children of Israel cut that bunch of grapes there, that eshkol of grapes. At the end of 40 days, lo and behold, there's that 40 again, which we don't have an answer for about what it represents specifically, except that it comes up over and over again in the Torah. We've guessed that maybe it's the weeks of gestation from uh, conception to birth. We, you know, it's long for a generation but maybe it's a generation, it's, it's significant, 40 days and 40 nights, or 40 years. At the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land by Yeshuvu mitor ha'aretz. They went straight to Moses and Aaron, and the whole is child, community of children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran, and at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran, and they made their report by Yeshivu otam davar, to the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them this, they Yisaprulahem, and said, We came to the land you sent us to. Indeed, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, and here is its fruit. It's the first time that phrase is used. Is this the first time? I think it gets used earlier in the Torah. Yeah. I'm almost it sure it does. It does indeed, which implies that they're affirming something they have heard. I'm, I don't think it's the first time. Okay. Um, and here's the key linchpin phrase that. No, okay. However, the Hebrew word, if you look in verse 28, is a very unusual choice of words here. Ephes. Ephes. 
Anybody know what Ephes means? Zero. 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 Afseha Aretz means the ends of the earth. Um, Ephes in modern Hebrew literally means, is the word for zero. Nothing. Gornished. You know, zero. Nada. Ephes. It's almost like they are canceling. This is the way I thought of it. They are canceling the previous statement. Ching, you know, they're zeroing it out. Or something like that. This is such a key moment. Key. Because Az Ha'am, the people who live in that land are Az. We said what Az meant? Strong. Great and powerful. Uh, Az is great and powerful. Right. Powerful, strong. Um, And the cities are fortified and very large. And Gam, and also, because the word Gam is used here, uh, Gam also we saw the children of the giants there. And Amalek. Remember who Amalek is? Amalek are the ones who attacked them uh, in the wilderness already. Amalek lives in the Negev region. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites inhabit the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. That's their report. (laughs) <laughs> okay yes it's a very scary report isn't it okay Vayahas Kalev Eta'am and Caleb hushed the people so we can presume that there was already an outcry before Moses and said Alo Na'ale we we will go up. We will go up. Alona Ale is the Hebrew way in the Torah of emphasis, meaning we can surely go up. Here's what he said. Piece of cake. <laughs> he, <laughs> Piece of cake. We can do that. He <laughs> says, Alona Ale. We're going to go up. We're going to go up. We're going to ascend and inherit, inherit it. Ki yachol nuchala. Because we can do it. We can do it. I'm thinking of something very, you know, this is not pretty. This is like, it's, it's just reminding me of what, like, say, the United States, the whole society had to do to fight World War II. You know, what it took and the sacrifice it took. And the, but the, the leadership saying, we can do it, we must do it. You know, Rosie the Riveter. You know, uh, that's what it's making me think of. Mm-hmm. This is not the Churchill, like mm-hmm. Churchill. Although the, 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 these other people aren't necessarily bad people. Nope, they are not necessarily bad people. Right. They're the just big people. people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the people, the big people in the land. Right. I mean, no, there's no, no, nothing that says that they're they're evil people. They're just there mm-hmm. occupying land yeah, that the Israelites want to go to. Yep, and they're not going to. Just hand it over, either. <laughs> Keep going on page 982. And the people, the men who had alu imo, who had gone up with Caleb, I just want to point out, amru lo nuchal la'alot. We cannot, I'm sorry about the English here, it doesn't say we cannot um, attack that people, it says lo nuchal la'alot el ha'am. We cannot go up, ara- ascend, to this people, or against this people. But the word Allah is used twice in this verse. 
כי חזק הוא ממנו. They are stronger than us. And then it says, ויוציאו דיבת הארץ. And so they spread slander about the land that they had toured, scouted, to the whole children of Israel, saying, and now the scouts' rhetoric, um, what's the word, heats up. They said, we can't do it. We can't go up. They're stronger than us. We saw the giants there. And now it, they keep going. And they say, uh, the land that we cross through to scout is a land that eats its inhabitants, <laughs> devours its settlers. He v'chol ha'am asher ra'inu The land and everyone we saw in it are people of great size. V'sham ra'inu et ha'nifilim. And there we saw the nifilim. The nifilim are the demigods. It says back in Genesis that uh, there were these guys called Nifilim and Bnei Elim who came down to mate, copulate with the human women. And God said, stop, because I don't want the heavenly realm and the earthly realm to be uh, uh, mixed. And uh, it's this story about titans. Um, And uh, so now they're saying, we saw the titans there. the Bnei Anak, the, the, the children, the, the, the Anakites are, are descended from the Titans. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. We looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. And thus we must have appeared to them. Michael. Yeah, I just reminds me of a piece I was just looking at NPR about a guy who said that in order for us to, to go towards the future, we need to change the narrative that we have. And, and there are two narratives here. Um, one narrative of, yeah, we can make, make it, we can do it. And the other narrative is, no, we can't. We are like, like grasshoppers. And this guy was talking about how empowering and how important narrative is that if we look at our us advancing now of the ecological climate change and disaster that we're facing. If we still face the narrative in a disastrous way, we're going to face a disaster. But if we change the narrative, we can supersede it. So it's kind of... Mm-hmm. It sure does. Jay? You know, as you read this, I can't help but to visualize the current, the current map. You have Israel with maybe what, six, six million Jews or so. Yeah. And surrounded by, by you know, countries I want to see is destruction from, from Iran, Iraq, Syria, surrounded by giant countries. And they're little trying to destroy the grasshoppers. And if you just interchange the words they use here with even the current, it's almost like a prophecy of the giants and the grasshoppers and the, and the conflicts. Can we do it? Or, can we have to, or should we just... Throw up our hands. Uh-huh. Or who are the giants really <coughs> are? Sorry? And the other question is, who are the giants, really? Yeah, so, so, so I don't say giants is giant. You know, giants. I understand. I understand. You know, yes, Jay. Uh, my mind turns to that, too. Yeah, you've got a billion Muslims, and, and, and you know, I mean, I mean, there is almost a prophecy here. A prophecy or a description of the way things keep going. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but 
There you go. The other voices I hear from modern Israel uh, remind us how powerful Israel is with the nuclear mm -hmm. weapons, with all the uh, aircraft uh, industry now, with all the uh, entrepreneurial uh, capitalism thriving in Israel, that what's to worry, they'll never destroy us. No, no, no. He's not making assumptions. He's describing another voice that you hear. He's not making. He wasn't. Jay, Jay. He wasn't making those assumptions. He was describing. There's another voice that shows that says Israel is is the Goliath, and yeah. Well, the right wing within Israel's government goes with that story. Oh well, well, okay. Cut. Um, because uh, uh, I will add this, and then we're, we're, we're going to leave those observations, which is that, interestingly, um, the way that that particular mindset works is it presents ourselves as perennial victims uh, who are constantly at risk of being destroyed in order to validate the, except the, the use of force and the building of force. So it's really complicated. It's not even like we're better and they're worse, so they're worse. It's really complicated. Can we not? Yes. Okay, because yes, Jay's mind turns to current events in Israel as appropriate, but that's not the purpose of this class. I just want to note that yes, that's one of the places our minds go. Do you need to add to that? Um, I'm on a different tack here. Um, Oh, well, this give me a mo like, remember that and give me a moment because I, I want to <coughs> swing a, hold on one yeah, sec. Not going there to the Israel no, hold on one sec. So, um, the, um, this is the line that uh, um, the Midrash says, where God says, okay, it's one thing for them to feel like grasshoppers. I can't dispute that. I'm paraphrasing an ancient midrash. But for them to then say that, and that's how they must have, we must have appeared to them, that's not their right to say that. They might have appeared like angels to them. They, so there's this great midrash where God takes them to task, not for feeling like grasshoppers, but for projecting onto everyone around them that that must be how they appear. It's the presumption that we feel this way, so everyone must feel this way about us. That's dumb. <laughs> dumb. That's the, that's the clinical term. Yeah, right. Right, right. Um, and what I mean is, is that that's what's going to prevent them from being able to move forward in their lives. Whoever you are, if you assume that, that not only that you can't do it, but that you walk in the room assuming everyone doesn't like you, right? We're, we're right in junior high now, right? I know, I know. It doesn't stop in junior high. How do, when we enter a new situation, how do we check all that at the door or at least keep it in its cloakroom in our brain uh, so that we can actually encounter a situation with some objectivity? Uh, if we have no objectivity, if everything is subjective, and that's what this is, is. So that's why don't go after whatever catches your heart or eye is like living with complete subjectivity from a very limited viewpoint. You're never going to get there 
if 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 you would if if you can't extend yourself beyond that subjective and impulsive self. Yes. Well, I was. And and that would extend to international relations. Yeah. I was looking at this like a child's nightmare. I was thinking of the kid having the nightmare about monsters. It is a nightmare. That's and right. How how um, Joshua and Caleb are are they're um, older somehow, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, they're like more mature, and the rest of them are children still, because they haven't grown up yet. And so this is like the nightmare, but the parents here are saying, don't believe that, this is a nightmare, and it's not, and you can do that. So I just had this kind of like, oh, you know, and how you were saying, we have our, we make our own nightmares by walking into the room and thinking nobody likes us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's a. That's right. We create that. But nightmares come to get our attention. They're. They're. They don't come to scare us and to stop us. They come to get us to get our attention so that we can learn something new about ourselves. Good. So I think that's where they didn't go. They got stopped by that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Julia and then Stu. I cannot resist telling you that the trope in this passage are very dramatic. The trope are the cantillation marks, how it was designed to be chanted. And there's one trope in, lo- in verse 3 that there's only Not like... Not verse, verse what? Verse 3, I think it is. It's under Tov. There, there are only uh, two or three of them in the whole Torah. I can't even remember the name of it. It's a double line. Do you remember the name of it? Double, double Mecha. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know what it's it sounds also like. In, um, what does it mean? Oh, in verse 3? Yes. I, I don't know how to sing it. Do you know how to sing it? No. But, but what are the implications of it? Yeah. The implications of the trope are that when these trope mark, chanting marks were assigned for how to chant the Torah, they were assigned both to um, promote proper um, syntax. In other words, there are signs that indicate clauses and commas, and, and then there are others that indicate emphasis and even drama. So uh, when a word really should be like emphasized, uh, there's a, there'll be a special and elaborate trope mark under it. This one, it's not super elaborate. elaborate. It's in um, the Nadav Danavi uh, also? story also. So, so people who learn to chant Torah, once they understand the Hebrew, start paying careful attention to the trope so cool. because it actually assists them in understanding the thrust of the Hebrew. But what, what are the words that are specifically emphasized? Good. The word good. Tov. The word good. good. Uh-huh. It's good. It's good. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Stu, you want to add something? I just want to say that we have to always remember that since they left Egypt, they haven't had to do a thing for themselves. Water, food, everything was given to them. And they're, they're not a military might at all. They're children yet. And so suddenly, to go in and think of that, they are grasshoppers. They've been feeling it. You know, it's sort of like as a kid where your parents don't say, you go and do it. No, I'll do it for you. And I know we know parents who, even at the age of the kids of 30, they still cut up their meat for the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where these people are. Oh, that's good. So developmentally, they... They've been fed and bathed and clothed, and, uh, and now, now they feel like grasshoppers. Okay, and before they were so yes. So again, there's two analogies we can work with here. One is the one of children needing to grow up, 
And the other is of former slaves needing to learn how to be agents of their own lives. Both, both. You know, there's a joke, uh, I have to tell it. Um, this limousine pulls up in front of the apartment building and the driver gets out and he opens the back door and an old lady gets out and he goes to the other side, he opens the door and he lifts this young man up. Uh, he's not a young man, he's a man up and he carries him into the building. And the old lady is standing there under the awning and the passerby says, is that your son? And she says, yes it is. And he says, uh, I'm so sorry, he can't walk. Oh no, he can walk. But thanks God he doesn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. I can relate. <laughs> thanks God he doesn't have to. <laughs> okay. Um, the uh, verse 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. Here's what happens. The whole community broke into loud crying. And the people wept that n- all night. They were crying about meat before, remember? And all... Uh, that's why it has to be about little kids, too, you know. All the Israelites railed against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt, the whole community shouted at them. Or if only we might die in this wilderness. Why is Yodhevavi taking us to that land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be carried off. Now our translation misses something here. It says, uh, oh, oh no, not yet. Hello, Tovlanu. Tov, here's the key word. So going up and tov is repeated over and over again. Good. Hello, tovlanu shuv mitzrayim. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Vayomru ish elachiv. And one person said to, they said to one another, nitna rosh, either let's turn around or let's appoint a new leader and return to Egypt. Interesting. The word tov, good. <coughs> Right? Um, when um, God creates the world, God says, Tov, it's good. And when God on the sixth day looks around and says, Tov, me'od, very good. So keep that in mind. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the entire congregation that was assembled there. Are they in despair? Are they imploring? Are they, we don't know exactly. Yoshua ben Nun and Caleb ben Yufuneh and Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Yufuneh among those who had scouted the land so they were two out of twelve tore their clothes a sign of grief right and exhorted the whole Israelite community and they said Haaretz asher avarnu valatur the land that we traversed and scouted ota tova haaretz meod meod it's really, really, really good. This other spies didn't say it wasn't good. They said it's good, but it's very interesting. It's very, very good. And if God wants us to, desires us to, uh, bring us into that land, a land that flows with milk and honey and give it to us, he, God will. Ach, but... 
Don't rebel against Yod Hei They are our prey. Now this is an interesting word. Al tirau et am haaretz. Do not fear this people of the land. Ki lachmenu heim. They're our bread. Before it was, this land consumes its inhabitants. Now they're our bread. But interestingly, it also means it also means something else because the word milchama, which is war, lochem is to do battle. So they're ours. It's just interesting that the word lechem, which is bread, and lochem, which is to to do battle, are the same. Are sound the same? Yeah. Um, they're ours. Sar tzilam. Their protection has fled from upon them. And God is going to, uh, uh, is with us. al do not fear them. And the whole people said, we're going to stone you. So they're, they're, they're getting ready. So it's a complete, complete balagan. It's complete chaos here. Uh, and then what happens? The glory of God appears. <laughs> In the tent of meeting before all the Israelites, right? The principal came back into the classroom. But anyway, um, that's what I think of. I, mean. I can't help it. This is like this is like somebody who's an alcoholic, you know, like falling down and just saying, "No, no, I can't." You know, it's the worst moment, and then suddenly this awakening happens, and they, you know, they. Found the Alcoholics Anonymous, and they go help other people. It's like, I mean, well, they are certainly hitting rock bottom here. Yeah, yeah. This is like the worst. This is, this is worst. just this. This is really something. And the Eternal One said to Moses, "How long will this people spur? Oh, we're going to run out of time. <laughs> now, now it's God's turn. Last week it was yeah. Moses's turn when yeah. he says, "Please just kill me." <laughs> and now he says. How long will this people spurn me? How long will they have no faith in me, despite all the signs that I've performed in their midst? I'm going to kill them <laughs> and disown them, and I'm going to make you a nation far more numerous than they. He's talking to Moses. And Moses says to God, Now Moses is great. When the Egyptians, from whose midst you brought up this people in your might, hear the news, <laughs> they will tell it to everybody. <laughs> now, they've heard that you, God, are in the midst of this people, and you appear in plain sight with your cloud resting over them by day and the pillar of fire by night. If you kill every single person here, the nations who have heard your fame will say, it must be because the Eternal was powerless to bring that people into the land, promised them on oath, that God slaughtered them in the wilderness. I love this. <laughs> Moses is like saying, God, yeah, you're, what are the neighbors going to think? And then, then Moses ups it. But then Moses ups it in a very interesting way. Then it says, therefore, please be patient. Let your, let your strength be, um, let's see, uh, get your strength together here, uh, because remember you said to me back on Mount Sinai, Adonai Erech Virav Chesed. You are God, I am God, full of patience and kindness. 
forgiving iniquity and transgression. Uh, not remitting all punishment, but uh, 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 visiting some iniquity of, onto the third or fourth generation. So he reminds God of God's better nature. This is what's said on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Yes, but it's not the first time it's said in the Torah. What's so interesting exactly. is that this, when Moses says, yes. It's the same conversation. After the golden calf, um, Moses has, has, has said to God, I, I, need, I can't do it unless I can see you. And the 13 attributes are revealed to Moshe. And then after, this, after the golden calf, same, the same conversation. God says, I'm going to kill them all. And again, and Moses says, what, you just said you're merciful, and what will the neighbors think? Mm -hmm. And it's the same conversation here. That's right. It's the reminder, this is who you said you are. You have to rise to your, God, you have to rise to your highest your self, self mm -hmm. even though we, the people say. This is one of the things I love about the Torah, is that the people have to rise up to their greatest self, and God has to rise up to God's greatest Moses self. Moses just has, because the last time we saw Moses, he was prostrate on the Moses had fallen Moses, on his face? Moses, without, without a, just, I'm a dime, just. Whenever Moses' children are threatened, Moses kid. is on his feet. Yeah. He says, forget about it. You're not touching the kid. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. He can lose it, but this is Moses. Yeah. This is Moses' consistent personality. Right. He does it for God, and he does it wherever it's necessary. It's it's why he's the leader. Nobody just gets to be the leader, right? right. right? Yes. Now, is Moses telling God that, that you know, it, it's okay, you don't have to uh, kill everybody, but you can punish the, their, the third and fourth generation? This is gonna, yes, so yes. It, it's okay, you don't have to punish them now, you can punish them later. No. No. No, he's saying you can't just destroy them. Because remember, your essential nature is forgiving and patient. But then why is it saying... Except that right. there's, there are consequences. And there are going to be consequences here. The iniquity of the parents is going to be visited on the kids. They're not going to get to go up to the land. That's what's going to happen now. <laughs> oh, okay. So Moses says to God after the golden calf, God, you're going to ha I have to know you better or I'm not going to be able to lead these people. Show me your glory. God says, no one can see my glory and live, but I can show you my goodness and my compassion. And he puts Moses in a cleft in the rock and passes by pronouncing yod heh vav heh, patient, abundant in kindness and forgiveness, uh, forgiving iniquity, not forgiving all, not, not relieving all iniquity, but, and so the, the, one of the cool things about this passage for me is that first Moses says to God, what are the neighbors gonna think? to try to talk him down, talk God down, and then says, but remember, also, you shared with me most intimately your true nature. Mm -hmm. Moses is reaching, just like we need to reach, just like the children of Israel can only be elevated if someone reaches into them and reminds them of what they're, who they really are, children of God, you know? God needs to be reminded. You know, that's the way the universe works. Uh, if they're feeling like grasshoppers, what's God feeling like now? It's like, yes, I know God. It says other places in the Torah many times that God is all-powerful. And is, any, is, is this beyond me to provide quail, you know, for a month? But then there's this other treatment that happens here. Also, I want to um, 
you know what we'll do? We're going to spend an extra week on this portion too when I get back oh, okay. in the heck with it because we're only halfway through. Uh, but uh, what Ellen was saying and what we mentioned last week is that almost every episode in the book of Numbers has its uh, parallel in the book of Exodus uh, when the children leave Egypt, whether it's water from a rock or Moses and God, uh, uh, God wanted to kill all the children of Israel, the golden calf. It's very interesting that we hear, we've heard these stories before and now we're hearing them again in a new iteration, a new version, right? I'm glad Joy is here because that's the way stories work, right? There's this version and then there's this version and they play with each, they play together. And there's a third version, which we'll look at next time, which is at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Moses recounts the journey in the wilderness. And Moses' recounting is actually, um, has interesting differences from this episode here as he retells it. So it's very interesting how the versions sort of build on each other and how the commentators look at each version and weave them together. And we'll get to do that. Um, So we'll read a few more verses. And the Eternal One said, Oh, pardon, I pray, verse 19, pardon, please, the iniquity of this people according to your great kindness as you have forgiven the people and carried them ever since Egypt to this moment. And Yod Hei said, Salachti ki dvarecha. That's in the Yom Kippur liturgy. I forgive them as you have asked. Ve'ulam, However, chai ani vimale kvod Adonai kol ha'aret. As I live and as my presence fills the entire universe, what a great, what a great line. None of the adults who have seen my presence and the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, and who have tested me these many times and have disobeyed me, shall see the land that I promised on oath to their ancestors. None of those who have spurned me shall see it, except my servant Caleb. Because haita ruach acheret, he had a different spirit. So why doesn't he mention Joshua? He, uh, he will in the next paragraph. And we don't know why. In, th- this story is kind of repetitive, so it has, it has a cadence to it. And for some reason, Joshua is mentioned in the next Next uh, repetition. And he, Vayimale uh, Acharai, he remained loyal to me, he remained filled with me. Uh, I will bring him into the land that he entered, and his offspring shall hold it as a possession. And in the book of Joshua, Caleb goes up to Joshua and says, I'm 85 years old, uh, I'm just as strong as I was 40 years ago. And here we are in Hebron. And remember, God said, I get Hebron, give me Hebron. And he, it, he gets Hebron. Mm-hmm. Now, take that off of the historical plane and what a mess Hebron is today. Hebron's the place where that cave is, mm-hmm. right? Which leads to the Garden of Eden. Is that like a portal into the Garden of Eden? Yes. Yeah. Wasn't that where Sarah was from? Sarah lived there. She wasn't from there. Oh, 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 in the book of Joshua. Oh, 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 oh. Later on. Later on. 
40 years from now, okay. this story actually gets uh, completed. 38. 38 years from now, this story actually gets completed. Um, uh, one more second, Jerome. Um, and his offspring shall hold it as a possession. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites occupy the valleys. Start it out, out then tomorrow and march into the wilderness by the way of the Sea of Reeds. In other words, go don't go. Mm. Head the other direction. Mm. Well, that's a good place for us to... Uh, Jerome? What is that? What's the actual Hebrew line 21? Nevertheless, as I live, it's a strange thing for God to say. As Verse I 21, Chayani, v'ulam. How would you say ulam? Indeed, ulam, something like that. Chayani, I am alive. <laughs> and who God is that alive? I, I am alive. alive. <laughs> That's right. He says it again. Verse twenty-eight. As I live, and my presence fills the entire universe. Presence, I understand, but the word "as I live." I am living. He's more saying, yeah, yeah. He's more saying, I, I am a real living thing. By my existence, which fills the universe, this ain't going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I love how God, God swears by God's self. You know? Wow. Uh, most scholars think it's after the Babylonian captivity. Uh, we don't know for certain, but that's that fifth century uh, Judea is the general scholarly guess. So that's a whole other treatment of what was going on at the time. What happens to Caleb then? I don't mean the person, I mean, what tribe was he from? He was from the tribe of Judah. He seems to disappear. And, and Susan just pointed out to me, Caleb has become a Christian name. Very Christian name. A lot of Christians mm. name their kids Caleb. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's their Bible, too. I, well, yeah, right, but... That know, seems... But I have no idea why. It's just some, it's just some political thing later on that we... Well, Caleb, Caleb... Well, no, Caleb doesn't get talked about much more. You're right. He doesn't have a book named after him, like Joshua. On the other hand... Caleb is the patriarch of the tribe of Judah. He claims Hebron, which is where King David is from. So I don't think, I don't think um, uh, Caleb is sort of disappearing. Is he considered um, an ancestor of David? Uh, he's not considered a direct ancestor of David, no, but of the tribe of Judah. Is Caleb the same name? I have friends who are just Jewish friends who name their Yes, Caleb. Yeah. It's Kalev in Hebrew, which either comes from Kalev, which means dog, or as we've talked about, Kalev, like a heart. So it's a heart name. And I think his name, because, he, because so many sentences he utters talk about, he says, talks about heart, that uh, the, uh, I think his name has heart in it. Um, it's a nice word play there. Okay, we'll keep going with this one in two weeks, not next week. Oh, uh, before you go, there may be an announcement. Jerry? Well, I think the donations for the yard sale are starting on Monday. Oh, I thought on Sunday. On Monday? Oh, Sunday. Bring okay, they're starting any day. And we can bring stuff. I believe so. And Jerry said he picked stuff up, too. And Jonah Carlson's bar mitzvahs yes. this Saturday. Ron and Ellie Carlton. Right. You, want, you want to enjoy a kid? 
Come to synagogue this Saturday. Oh my goodness. He's so sweet. He's so, so good. He's, he's so articulate. Such, such a voice. His Devar Torah is, is, is just great. So if you want to enjoy a kid in shul, come this Saturday for Jonah. Uh, I just have to mention that. I've known him since he was born, I think. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I, that's so important. Everybody, uh, Bob, this is really important. I forgot. I'm so glad Carol mentioned it. At the New Progressive Baptist Church at 6 p.m. tonight, that's not exactly what I was... There about. is a special interfaith gathering uh, to... Uh, to um, for the, thing that for the mass murder that happened in the church in Charleston. And uh, so I'll be at the church. It's in the Rondout. This is Modelli Clark's church. What did I say? Six. Six. Did I? You did. At the Rondout. Yeah. I've got the email. It's at 6. 6 p.m.? Yeah. It's on 8 Home Street in the Rondout, New Progressive Baptist Church. Uh, we have an ongoing relationship with them. Modelli Clark is the pastor there. So I'll be there at 6 tonight for a service there that he's holding so we can be together in solidarity with the victims of the shooting in the church in, in Charleston. Carol, uh, so I wanted to mention that, and I'm sorry I forgot. Was that it? I don't know how to send the email. Jerry, I'll okay. write it down. I'll write it down for you. Well, okay. I don't have it, but I, I, I can find it. Home. 8 Hone Street, H-O-N-E. It's down, it's parallel to, it's across from a Beale Street. It's right down at the okay. bottom of the Rondout. At 6 o'clock today. At 6 o'clock, it's Thank called you. the New Progressive Baptist Church. Okay. And our showing there will, we've, They've been to our Passover seders. We've been to their simchas and their things. We're working together in all kinds of ways. And this would be a good day to show up. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I meant to say that at the beginning and I forgot. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you.